Turn in your Bibles to Acts, the seventh chapter. Acts chapter seven. I have made a choice in preaching through Acts in the evening that I would cover one chapter each night. Now we have a long chapter here, and so I'm not going to delay on any one verse, as you're going to see. There's a few things we want to see from it, but what I want you to get from the book of Acts is not a study where you get lost looking at each tree, but where you see the forest, and the forest is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when it's filled with the Holy Ghost. And in Acts chapter 7, it's a deacon filled with the Holy Ghost. And we don't know if Stephen was highly educated or not educated at all. We know nothing about him, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Because Stephen had been told that when he appeared before a council, he was not to meditate on what he was going to say. Isn't that a wonderful way that the Lord left his apostles in the earth? Amen. When you're put in prison and you know you're going to face a horrible council the next day where your life is likely to be at stake, do not meditate on what you're going to say. Because in that hour, I will give you the words to say, and it will turn to be a testimony for you. And we saw from Acts chapter 6 that Stephen spoke with wisdom that could not be resisted. The greatest deacon the Lord Jesus Christ has ever had, according to the testimony of Scripture. Now, brethren, we're going to go through this quickly. What we're looking at in Acts chapter 7 is a sermon, and then what happens to Stephen because he spoke the truth. So I'm going to read some verses. I won't even comment on some, and I'll comment on others. And I hope it's of some profit to you. I want you to see what a sermon looks like when it's preached by the Holy Ghost. We saw in the last few verses of chapter 6 that the Jews suborned men. They paid them, they secured them to raise false accusations against Stephen of blasphemy. They accused him of blaspheming God, Moses, and the temple. And they said that he's preaching that Jesus Christ is going to destroy this temple and the customs which Moses gave us. And so with those accusations ringing in his ears, that council looked at him And they saw the face of an angel, a shining, bright, frightening, glorified face. And so the high priest says in verse 1, are these things so? And here we go with the Holy Ghost speaking. Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. I want you to notice the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. He is first of all going to find great agreement with the Jews. The Jews love their father Abraham. And so from this second verse through the eighth verse, Stephen is going to address how much he respects Abraham and God's dealings with Abraham. And by the end of this eighth verse, we should hear the first amens coming from the crowd of the Jews' council because of the agreement they would have. The God of glory. He he appeals to the God that the Jews worshipped and that Stephen worshipped and that Abraham worshipped, the God of glory. There be many gods, according to the heathen, But there's really only one God, as Paul would tell us, and it's the Lord God of heaven. He is the God of glory. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He was a Chaldean. He lived in the land of the Chaldeans before he dwelt in Charon. And God, that God of glory said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. When God called Abraham, Abraham told his father about this call that he had received from the Lord. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 11. His father Terah heard that call and took Abraham and left the Ur of the Chaldeans and came into a place named Haran. But now, brethren, God called Abraham. 
God didn't call his father Terah. In fact, God called Abraham to leave his father's house. And so his father accompanied him as far as Haran. It's Karen here in the New Testament as that word comes into the Greek language and then into English. But it was Haran, and he had his father with him. And so guess what had to happen in Haran? God had to take his father. Bye-bye, father. And so Abraham was left with his nephew Lot, and then God brought him in from there into the land of Canaan. And he gave him an inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. Here Stephen, by the Holy Ghost, is lifting up the faith of Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land. I am going to give you all this land for an everlasting possession and your seed after you. He didn't get the land and he didn't have a son. But Abraham believed God. Now we know from the rest of scripture, more than these Jews did, that what Abraham saw was the Lord Jesus Christ as his seed and heaven as his home. And while Abraham never owned any of that property except a small burial place that he bought for Sarah, God did give him heaven. Because when I read of a poor man named Lazarus dying, where did he go? Abraham's bosom, bosom, brethren. Heaven is called in that place Abraham's bosom because that's where Abraham is. Because he believed God. The promise he saw, he saw right through that land to the reality of the promise, and that was heaven. Hebrews 11 tells us about that in detail. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. Isaac was the seed of Abram as far as the land was considered and as far as being a sojourner. And for 400 years, Isaac wandered around Canaan as a, in a tent, didn't have a permanent dwelling place. And then Jacob, and then Joseph, who went down into Egypt. And the total years was 400. Now for those of you who are not challenged enough by me going through this chapter quickly tonight, if you want a little challenge, Genesis 15 says 430. Exodus 12 says 400. Galatians 3 says 430. Acts 7 says 400. Solve it. Email me. We'll have some fun together this week. But you better use a King James Bible. There's a great deal of pleasure in that sixth verse of Acts chapter 7. But you've got to do a little bit of work. And it makes you think about the life of Abraham. There's 30 years missing? No, not missing. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. That nation that Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were in bondage to was Egypt. But that bondage was only 215 years. The 400 years that you had, that little preposition, that little phrase, 400 years, that is in verse 6, is applying to the sojourning of the seed of Abraham. Because you can, you can find rather easily by looking at the chronology of Genesis and Exodus that they were only in Egypt 215 years. But the sojourning of Abraham's seed, not having a permanent dwelling place, was a total of either 400 or 430. And he gave him, this is God, the God of glory, gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac, and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. This council of Jews is sitting there hearing Stephen, with his face shining like an angel, preaching a condensed version of the history of Israel, lifting up the God of glory, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, And the patriarchs, he's showing a great deal of respect for the Jews' religion. And the patriarchs, that is the sons of Jacob who formed the twelve tribes of Israel, moved with envy. Those brothers sold Joseph into Egypt 
but God was with him. Brother, don't you love those words, but God was with him? When you go back to Genesis chapter 39, you find him in Potiphar's house, a servant sold by his brothers. But do you know what it says in verse 2? But God was with him. And then in verse 3, it says that Potiphar put everything under his hand because God was with him. But then that woman tried to destroy him, and he ends up in prison, but it says... But God was with him. And then it says that the head, the captain of the prison put everything under Joseph's hand because God was with him. Four times in Genesis 39. And they all, they knew that story. And here's Stephen by the Holy Ghost. But God was with him. Joseph was sold for envy into Egypt. But God was with him. And the Son of God was sold for envy also. But God was with him. We know that because we can look into Acts 7 and see with eyes that see and ears that hear and they could not. God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions, Potiphar's wife, prison, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. The Lord was indeed with him. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. Notice the Holy Ghost through the mouth of Stephen saying, Our fathers. Stephen's owning the same fathers that all the Jewish council owned as fathers. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Jacob stayed in Canaan. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. Now for those of you, brethren, who want a second challenge from this sermon, seventy-five souls according to Acts 7.14. Go look at the other accounts in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 22 and Genesis 46, 26, you're going to see 70 in one place and 66 in another. And they're not, they're not exceedingly difficult. They just make you think a little bit about a man's descendants. And I don't want to say more. It makes it too easy, but it'll say 66 in one place, 70 in another and 75 here. And by doing a little bit of study, For those of you who are challenged that way, you'll be able to figure it out, and it's a blessing to see it, how the Lord is very precise, brethren. He doesn't round off 75 to 70, and he doesn't round up 66 to 70 just to get his point across. He will use terminology in all three places that in one place means 66, because certain will be excluded. He'll mean 70 in another place, and he'll mean 75 here. Seventy-five souls, and Jacob came down into Egypt. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. Those are the the fathers of the twelve tribes, the patriarchs. And Jacob was carried over into Sychem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham brought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. Now that ends Joseph. We've covered Abraham and Joseph very quickly. From verses 2 through 8, Stephen preaches Abraham. From verses 9 through 16, he preaches Joseph going down into Egypt and what happened with Joseph in Egypt. Now we come to verse 17. What has he been accused of in Acts 6? This man ceaseth not to blaspheme Moses. Hmm. So let's see what the Holy Ghost does. From verse 17, all the way to verse 44, Stephen is going to preach about Moses. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, now that time was the time that we read about in verse 6. They'd be evilly entreated, they'd they'd sojourn in a a strange land, not their own, for 400 years. As that time became close to expiring, is what we're being reminded of here by Stephen in verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, God would bring them out after 400 years, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. 
I got to stop there for just a minute. For those of you who want a third one, I'd like you to sit down with your calculators or computers and tell me how that in 215 years, 75 people can go down into Egypt and 215 years later, 600,000 footmen come out. That's above the age of 20, men only. Now, if you have 600,000 men above the age of 20, and they have wives, and they have two children apiece, we've got 2,400,000 people from 75 in 215 years. Brethren, they were not wasting time when they weren't building pyramids. It's a miracle. That's what I want you to It's a miracle. I mean, you want to talk about a family reunion. Those people were busy, and the Lord blessed them. And you know, when I read Exodus chapter 1 about those Hebrew midwives explaining to Pharaoh Amen. that the Israelite women had the babies before they could get there and do anything with them, I wonder if maybe they did. Right. Now, I know that those midwives were protecting those young men, right. and the Lord blessed them for that. But they, those Hebrew women were lively. They were fertile. And you got to read about it. And I, I want to tell you something. In, the, in Psalm 105 and verse 47, this is a, I'm chasing a rabbit for a second. It's going to cost me dearly. But in Psalm 105, it says there wasn't one feeble one in the entire group. You go look in any almanac or medical um, statistical book that you can get out of 2,400,000 people the different kinds of infirmities that you will have by the natural, the normal birth process. Psalm 105 and verse 47 tells us there wasn't one feeble person among them. Isn't that a blessing? Amen. Is that a blessing upon a family? The Lord said, I have loved you. You weren't the greatest of all people. In fact, you were the smallest of all people, but I have loved you. And when the Lord loves a family, his blessing is upon them. Amen. They multiply rapidly and there wasn't one feeble among them we got to go on. The people grew and multiplied. They grew so fast. If you read Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh was scared. A Pharaoh came on the scene that didn't know Joseph, didn't know the relationship that they had with the people that were living down there in Goshen. All he did was look at his census, and when he saw the results, it said, there are more people living in Goshen than are living in Egypt. And if they ever got serious against us, we'd be in trouble. And so... He, in Exodus chapter 1, we read that Pharaoh began some new laws in the nation in order to afflict them with hard bondage. But the hard bondage didn't slow them down. They kept multiplying. So then he passed the law of infanticide to throw out their young men, killing infants when they were born. So we read it. Till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time, remember the time of the promise drew nigh, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And I'm trusting that we all know that story. Moses' mother loved him. He was a goodly child well favored and for three months she could keep him hid but after th you know children start to get older and louder and so she put him out there in a little basket of bulrushes waiting to see what the lord would do with moses and did the lord ever do something with moses he was Amen. adopted and was he adopted into a decent family Amen. yes into pharaoh's household and that's the lord again and here is stephen by the holy ghost Reminding this Jewish council, there's more amens coming right now. Right. More amens as Stephen is lifting up Moses and God's hand upon him from his very birth, putting him in Pharaoh's household. Nourished him for her own son. Verse 22. Oh, let's stop there at verse 21 for another second. Who nursed Moses? His own mother. Now, isn't that incredible providence of God? What did that Egyptian woman, she wasn't going to nurse that little Hebrew boy. She looked around and said, what are, who are we going to get to nurse this, this little boy that I've found? And there was Miriam standing in the weeds there beside the little river. And Miriam said, I know a woman that will do it. And went home and got Moses' mother. 
I bless you, Lord, because there's no God like him. Amen. No God like him. That mother consigned her son to the providence of God, and she had him back at her breast before that day was over. God is great and greatly to be praised. And when he was, verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Moses was a goodly child, high intellect, physically capable, and God blessed him. And he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. I don't care what you want to study about the Egyptians, their pyramids, their mathematical systems, their forecasting of the flooding of the Nile, whatever they had, Moses was learned. And how much of it? All of it. He was a 40-year-old expert in all the wisdom of Egypt. Plus, he was a mighty man. He was mighty in word. He was an eloquent. This is what really gets me. Forty years later, he's going to try to tell the Lord that he's got a hair lip and can't speak. But the Bible tells us that he was a mighty man in word and in deed. Now that tells you that there are some stubborn men who don't want to go into the ministry, and Moses was one of them. And it irritated the Lord. But I want you to notice this about him, and the reason I'm stopping at this verse is when you read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses traded in everything that was in Egypt for the reproaches of Jesus Christ and the suffering of of his people, he traded in all of it. He had all of its wisdom, and he was mighty in word and deed. He was not a misfit because he was a Hebrew. He was mighty. He had been taught everything. He traded in it all. All that this world can offer, Moses had it, and Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Are we willing to do that? And without hurting any of your feelings, there's no Moses is here tonight. And I don't mean to hurt anyone's feelings, but Moses was mighty in that nation, and he traded it all in to suffer affliction with the people of God. And brethren, he suffered the rest of his life, leading those stiff-necked and stubborn people around the wilderness. But what what a great man. And Stephen here is preaching about Moses lifting up Moses and God's providence in his life. Verse 23, And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart. How did it come into his heart? I preached to you recently a series of messages entitled, We Are the Clay. How does anything come into your heart? I read in the Bible that the preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And the Lord loved to deal in 40s with Moses. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, 40 years in the wilderness. Die. That was Moses' life. And at the at 40 years of age, God put in his heart to go visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. The time wasn't right. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Let me go back to that little event there. When Moses went down to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, he saw an Egyptian oppressing one of the Israelites. And being a mighty man, in word and deed, he slew the Egyptian to protect his Israelite brother expecting that they would look at him because he had such position, rank, and accomplishments as their deliverer. And they didn't at all. They didn't understand that at all. In fact, they rejected him. And I want you to notice every little thing. Now, these Jews, did not. They were none of them were having to sit there and remember, is that true or not what he's saying about Moses? This Jewish council knew everything about Moses. But there are certain little things being brought in by the Spirit of God. And one is, Moses was rejected by the Israelites. 
Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Do those words have a familiar ring? Moses wasn't always the great hero of Israel. Many of those Israelites had rejected him, and at the age of 40 they rejected him. He wasn't always welcomed as a hero. They rejected him, and so he fled the land of Egypt and went into Midian. Verse 30, And when forty years, see there's the second forty, when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen... I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This, here's Stephen's interpretation and application of that. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer, by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. Stephen is pointing out to these Israelites, this Jewish council, that man that they rejected saying, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? God chose the rejected one to send as their deliverer by the hand of the angel in that bush. And brethren, don't get nervous. The angel in that bush was the Lord. That's why the angel said these words, I am the God of thy father Abraham. It wasn't an angel. Sometimes God is referenced as an angel when he takes on an appearance on earth. It was the Lord himself. The Jews rejected Moses, but the very one they rejected, just think about what Stephen is slipping in here by the Holy Spirit. The one they rejected, God chose and God blessed by His presence to actually be their deliverer. Verse 35, I'll read it again. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, forty years. We have three forties. Forty years in Pharaoh's house, forty years in Midian, forty years showing mighty signs and wonders. Brethren, it's Micah chapter 7 and verse 15. I'm not going to turn you there. It takes too long. Micah 7.15, the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, he would show marvelous things in the earth, signs and wonders for 40 years. There was a 40-year period of reformation between the death of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. And during that 40-year period, mighty signs and wonders were shown. Just like Moses showed mighty signs and wonders for 40 years. And Micah 7.15 will tell you that just as Moses did it for 40 years, so the Son of Man that would be coming would do it for 40 years by himself and by his apostles. Marvelous things will he show him for 40 years. When you see all these people today who think that the signs and wonders are back, they've missed it by about 1900. And 30 years. Because in 70 AD, the purpose for signs and wonders went away, and the promise of signs and wonders went away. We only needed them for 40 years, and that's all God promised them. It's Micah 7.15, and that's a verse that you'll want to remember if you're ever dealing with those that still believe in signs and wonders. Moses brought them out, verse 36, after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea, And in the wilderness, 40 years. Moses did miracles for 40 years. This is, now brethren, 
listen to this one, that the Spirit of God slips in. This is that Moses. You men, now he's not saying this, this is all implied. You men who have accused me of blaspheming Moses, who are saying that Moses is your great prophet, you put so much stock in everything Moses did, you don't want Jesus to overturn any of Moses' customs. Well, I want to remind you of something Moses said. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. He didn't have to read the rest of that, because all the men in that council knew what the rest of that was. And do you know what the rest of that word is? Those people that will not hear this prophet that God will raise up like unto Moses shall be destroyed from among the people. But they all knew that, brethren. There is, a, there is infinite, there is God's wisdom in this sermon. Amen. God knew how much they under, don't even question. They knew exactly that prophecy. Right. That's why in John chapter 1 and 2 you can read about the Pharisees coming to John the Baptist and asking him, Art thou that prophet? They knew all about that prophet that was coming. And Stephen didn't even read that scary part, he just read that don't this Moses that you're putting so much stock in and confidence in, don't you know that he made a prophecy that a man would be raised up just like one of the brethren, not from Judah, just like one of the ordinary brethren. But they knew the rest of that prophecy also. And it was a prophecy particularly, only, uniquely for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is that Moses that said that, Like unto me, him shall ye hear. Because it, said, it goes on to say, Those that won't hear will be destroyed from among the people. <clears throat> this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. The Ten Commandments, brethren, from Mount Sinai to whom our fathers would not obey. Oh, another example that the Jews, though they claimed so much about Moses, didn't really want to obey Moses. Because when Moses, and isn't that interesting that we preached this two weeks ago in righteous indignation, when Moses was on Mount Sinai for those 40 days, they couldn't wait. They went to Aaron and said, well, as for this Moses that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You need to make us gods to go before us. And that's where the golden calf came from, as we now read. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. In their hearts thrust him from them. He is pointing out the rebellious character of the Jewish people, that even Moses, whom they claimed was their favorite national hero, even him... They turned against, would not obey him, thrust him away, and turned back to Egypt. The beggarly elements of the world. But it's all, listen brethren, those Jews, if they'd have been given ears to hear and eyes to see, would have understood exactly where he was going, just as the Pharisees often did when Jesus spoke, when they would know that he was speaking of them. Saying unto Aaron, Those Jews over there in Exodus chapter 32 said to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. We don't know what's happened to him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned. This is the most blessed sermon, and you have the understanding to understand it all. Then God turned. Brethren, what did God do to the generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? He turned, and what do we learn from our study of Hebrews? He swore in his wrath, they shall not enter in to my rest. This generation didn't enter into his rest either. Then God turned. A prophecy is being made of what's going to happen to that Jewish council. And they don't even know it yet but you know it and you see it. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Amos chapter 5, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts 
and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Those 40 years of wandering, if you had had God swear against you that you were going to have to wander for 40 years and that he was going to kill every single one of you until your carcasses, what a pleasant way to describe death, your carcasses dropped in the wilderness, what would you do? I've tried to teach you over the last few months. There is only one thing to do. It's to flee and repent. But do you know what they did? They took up the tabernacle of their god Moloch and the figure of their star god Remphan. Figures which he made to worship them, and he carried them away beyond Babylon. But God never forgot what they did in the wilderness when they should have been sobered by what was happening to them. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed. That's the, that's the tent, the tabernacle. Speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Moses saw the fashion of the tabernacle when he was in Mount Sinai. And Bezalel made it exactly as Moses saw it. Which also our fathers that came after. Now he's moved to the second generation. First generation all died in the wilderness. Second generation were 20 years of age and under. They grew up. They're the ones that got the land of Canaan. Speaking of the tabernacle, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. Brethren, that word Jesus there is Joshua. And it's there for a reason, and we don't want to change it. We do not want to change it to the word Joshua. We want to leave it Jesus so that we are forced to understand that the word Jesus means Joshua, so that we're forced to understand what Joshua means. Salvation is of the Lord. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, for he shall save his people from their sins. Remember, we've preached a whole message on that. We don't want to change it. We want to understand that Yahashua, which was given to the name of Moses' assistant, which was given to Mary's baby, when it comes through Greek into English, becomes Jesus. We want to leave it that way. God left it that way for us. We're going to leave it that way because it leads us into a Bible study that is good and profitable. Jesus is an English word. Joshua is Hebrew into English. Joshua tells us a little bit more about that name. Remember, we studied that, how Moses renamed the man that was to serve with him, Jehoshua. He was known as Osea. Because Jehovah was going to be with him. Jehovah is salvation, but that's a whole other study. I just want you to know that when you look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 45, and this is your pastor trying to point out a few simple things to you, when it says, which also are fathers that came after, that's the second generation of Israelites, not the ones that died, but the ones that lived, to go into Canaan. They brought in with Joshua, Moses' assistant, into the possession of the Gentiles, that's Canaan the land that was owned by seven nations across the Jordan River, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. There were about 500 years from the days of Joshua to the days of David. There's 450 to the days of Samuel. For 450 years, God raised up judges to protect and to guide Israel after they had driven out the seven nations of Canaan. Verse 46, describing David, it says, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. Stephen starts out, verses 2 through 8, Abraham. Verses 9 through 16, Joseph. Verses 17 through 44, the vast majority of his sermon, his defense, Moses. Then he quickly jumps over 450 years of judges. They're unnecessary because, remember, He's been accused of blaspheming the the temple. Blaspheming the temple. So what's he he jumps over all those judges, all the other kings, except David. David was a great man who found favor with God and wanted to build God a temple. Verse 47, but Solomon built him a house. That's the end of his history. Now we have two things left in every good sermon. The application and the invitation. 
and I hope you rejoice with me. Men today want to put an invitation on every sermon. Stephen puts one on. He invites them to repent and believe on the just one that they had just killed. But now his application. You accuse me of blaspheming Moses? Here's what I believe about Moses. That God was with him, and he was God's chosen man. But the history of Israel shows that they rejected him and turned away from him over and over and over. Now you've accused me of blaspheming the temple? Here's what your own scriptures have to say. Solomon built him a house, and that was the greatest house that God ever had in Israel. Verse 48, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. This is Stephen's words by the Holy Ghost. This is not history. This is application. The God that we worship, the God of glory, doesn't dwell in buildings like this that we are now in where you're interrogating me and forcing me to give a defense against false accusations. The God of glory doesn't dwell in buildings like this. The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And then he quotes the scripture to back himself up. Remember all these points. As saith the prophet, and, you, and this is Isaiah 66, the first two verses. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? How in the world can you accuse me of blaspheming the temple? In order to be guilty of blasphemy, I've got to blaspheme God. And God doesn't even dwell in temples made with hands. He's too great for that. But he's still doing it nicely. He's just bringing an application to bear on them that their temple that they put so much stock in meant nothing. Let me chase a short one. Jeremiah 7 will tell you that Israel put so much stock in their temple that they believed as long as they kept that thing functioning, they could go and sin any sin they wanted to, and God would deliver them. And they would just say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You can go read it in Jeremiah chapter 7. We are delivered to do all these abominations. That was their religion. They believed that because they had the temple of the Lord, God would deliver them no matter what they did. They put so much stock in the building. And so many religions do today, so many churches do today, in their structure, their organization, the size, the beauty of it. And it's nothing. It's all the God that we're dealing with and whether we're going to obey his word or not. So his application is, you've accused me of blaspheming the temple. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Sorry. This is all implied. That charge doesn't stick either. I've shown you my allegiance to Moses, but you're just like the fathers that rejected him. And that Moses spoke of the one that I'm following because he said that God would raise up a prophet like unto him out of his brethren. Now here's the invitation. And they weren't playing just as I am. This is a deacon that's speaking by the Holy Spirit. And brethren, I'm not trying to be funny at all. I want you to rejoice in how God preaches. he's been very kind so far men, brethren and fathers he's laid out a history that they've said amen to I'm sure that some have been nudging each other and looking at each other saying this man's got his history down pat in fact he's opened my eyes to a couple things that I hadn't thought about before I don't see that he's done anything all that wrong and then he tells him this temple doesn't mean very much God doesn't dwell in it He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And then his invitation. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, when you call a Jew uncircumcised in any part of his body, it's offensive. It's highly offensive. And brethren, this is not new language. You can go back into the law of Moses and find Moses stating God's word to the people of Israel, circumcise your hearts. This is not new language. The Apostle Paul is not the first one in Romans chapter 2 to say that a true Jew is one who's circumcised in his heart. Moses was, by the grace of God. 
But I want you to notice that when the Holy Spirit preaches a message, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. The Holy Ghost chose Moses to be the leader of this nation. They rejected him. He leaves for a few days to go get the lively oracles from God, and you make a golden calf. You thrust him away and turn back into Egypt. You've always resisted the Holy Ghost, just like your fathers. Now I want to tell you something. When it says resist the Holy Ghost, it means the preaching of God's prophets and apostles of the message of the Holy Ghost. Because no man has ever resisted the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost intends to move, and He moves upon the face of the waters, He brings about creation, brethren. When the Holy Ghost moves on a heart, and the Bible says the preparation of the heart in man, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, that heart will be prepared, and that tongue will answer. They were not resisting the Holy Ghost in His personal presence. They were resisting the preaching by the Holy Ghost. The preaching of the of the prophets and the preaching of the apostles and the preaching of Jesus, they were rejecting it. Because all that preaching was being done by the Holy Ghost. That's what is meant. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost's message, you're resisting it. You've always resisted it. As your fathers did, so do ye. And now I hope in this invitation that you can see how he's tying in the things that he brought out in his history. Because he pointed out how the Israelites had rejected Moses. And now he shows them they're just like them. They're rejecting the Holy Ghost choices. The Holy Ghost chose Moses. They rejected him when he was 40. They rejected him when he was 80. And so the Holy Ghost had anointed Jesus Christ above his fellows with the Holy Spirit above measure. And they rejected him. And he had been manifested by God's grace with mighty signs and wonders. Had he calmed the sea? Had he fed 5,000 men besides women and children? And they took up 12 baskets full? Had he raised the dead? Had he cast out devils? He said, if I cast out devils, no doubt the finger of God is here and the kingdom of God is here. And yet they couldn't see the signs and wonders any more than they could see them from Moses. Moses, who could lift that rod of his and bring 10 plagues in the nation of Israel. No sooner did they get across that Red Sea and he goes up into Mount Sinai to get the lively oracles and they build themselves a golden calf. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. The Lord Jesus Christ comes into our nation and God approves him by mighty signs and wonders and you reject him. You're just like your fathers. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. Those Old Testament prophets that spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ, some of them were put to death by the fathers of these men. And what Stephen is doing with the Holy Ghost is lumping them all together. They have resisted the message of the Holy Ghost. And that is that a Messiah was coming. The just one was coming. There were prophets that showed before of the coming of the just one. He doesn't name him. He just calls him The just one. We know who it is. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they knew who it was because they had just said his name in Acts chapter 6 and verse 14. Which of the fathers have not, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Now, this is not politically correct language, and this is not how you win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie would not approve of language like this, but this is what the Holy Ghost approves of. And I hope that you'll always measure every preacher you ever sit under and every pastor that you submit to by the Holy Ghost and His message in the Word of God and no other, never, the Holy Spirit. We are not dealing in slight matters where every man has a right to his own opinion. We are dealing in eternal matters of the great God. And we better listen to him and submit to him. And the man who represents him as as his ambassador had better cut loose with everything he's got. And the Holy Ghost shows this here out of a deacon. They were the betrayers and murderers. Don't think to yourself that Judas was the only one that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because he betrayed him to the Jews. The Jews betrayed him into the hands of a foreign oppressive government that killed him. That was horrible. That foreign oppressive governor stood there, Pilate, several times and said, I find no fault in him. What is, I find no fault in him. Why can't I let him go? And they refused. And they turned and betrayed a man, a countryman of their own, a Jew of their own, one born and had lived among them for 33 years. They turned him over to the foreign power. They were the betrayers. They betrayed him to the enemy. Everyone who's been in the military knows exactly what I'm talking about. They betrayed him to the enemy and they murdered him. Their words were, crucify him, crucify him. And he, Stephen goes on to say, you all have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And brethren, what did he look like? An angel. Do you think he was saying that to promote himself? I want to tell you that every word that came from Stephen's mouth was by the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost had already given a picture to them that they were speaking to an angel. And he said, because remember, according to the word of God, who gave the law, who gave the Ten Commandments to Israel? But the angels of God. And here they were having one last chance, brethren, a message from Stephen the deacon who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. And they steadfastly beheld his face, and it was as the face of an angel. The last verse of chapter 6. What do wicked men do when they hear the truth preached properly by the Holy Spirit? In In glory, glorious truth, connections, perfect, beautiful. No wasted word in that entire thing. Short, to the point, blessed. Lifting up the God of glory, showing his providence. What do they do? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. They railed on him and ridiculed him and taunted him and, and accused him and screamed at him for what he had just said to them. The preparations of the heart in man is from the Lord. What does the Bible tell us about these Jews? He blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart lest they should understand and be converted and he should heal them because his intent was to turn against them and to swear in his wrath and to destroy them. But I want to tell you something, brethren, about Stephen. I want you to love him tonight and I want all of our children to know, I want all the children to know that God is with those men that put their trust in him. Stephen wasn't an apostle. Stephen wasn't a great man like the apostles were. He was a deacon. He had been ordained by the apostles in order to wait on tables to take care of widows. But God had blessed him with great faith and been the Holy Ghost. And he preached. They accused him. They hauled him into court. He spoke the words of the Holy Spirit. But God was with him. The first thing God did was, when he opened his mouth, he spoke with a wisdom that no man could resist. That was a testimony that God was with him. Second, he stood there all alone with that great council gathered against him of all the authority in Israel that with a mo- with one decision could accuse him of blasphemy and to be stoned to death outside the building. He stood there and his face became the face of an angel. When the high priest said, Are these things so? He preached the most glorious sermon you'd ever want to read. God was with him. When they gnashed on him with their teeth, brethren, my Lord Jesus Christ opened up heaven to him and blessed him by the Spirit of God to look up. I read in verse 55 that he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, the God of glory that he had just preached that they were now blaspheming and gnashing upon him with their teeth, he saw that God of glory, and he saw his son, Jesus Christ, standing at his right hand. Would that confirm you, brethren? Would it confirm you to speak with wisdom no man could resist, to have the face of an angel to preach a sermon like that without any premeditation, and then to look into heaven and see Jesus Christ standing there, letting you know that he was with you? so that Stephen the deacon could face that council that were cut to their heart 
and were railing on him and gnashing on him with their teeth. And I want to tell you something, the Holy Ghost gave him more. The Holy Ghost didn't only open his eyes to see heaven opened and to see Jesus there. The Holy Ghost filled, the Holy Ghost filled his mouth with the words to tell that Jewish council what he saw. So I read in the 56th verse that Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And instead of looking at his face, of having heard that sermon, of realizing there have been more miracles done in the last several days since Pentecost than in the history of Israel, instead of thinking of any of that, what do they do? They act contrary to nature itself. And they cried out with a loud voice. They screamed and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord, unity in hatred of truth. You'll find it. You speak the truth, and everyone will be of one accord against you, because they cannot stand it. And within one accord, they stopped up their ears, ran upon him, cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And I want to tell you that that Lord Jesus Christ, who stood there at the right hand of God, was going to take care of that Saul of Tarsus and change his heart. And we're going to run into him in a few chapters. But brethren, the Lord Jesus opened up heaven so that Stephen could see him. And Stephen steadfastly looked into heaven at his Lord Jesus. And they stoned Stephen in verse 59, who was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that's the way we all need to die. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And if he doesn't open heaven for us to see Jesus Christ standing there, brethren, do you have the eye of faith tonight? He's ours. He stands at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He is our Savior. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, and the stones are thudding off his body. And he cried with a loud voice. This wasn't a whispered prayer. He cried with a loud voice so that Saul of Tarsus heard these words. And all those there, but it didn't move them. He said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And I preached to you two weeks ago on righteous indignation that we ought to have the spirit of Phinehas when it comes to evil in our lives and the lives of our family. But brethren, when it comes to our personal enemies, we better have the spirit of Stephen. Do you know what Stephen prayed? He said, Lord, I'm not important enough. I'm not worthy enough. For you to take notice of this sin, forgive them what they're doing to me. Don't lay this to their charge. He didn't say for God to forgive them of all their sins, but he pointed out that the sin of stoning him was nothing. And he fulfilled everything that a man full of the Holy Ghost will do. And that, according to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, is to bless them that persecute you and to pray for them that despitefully use you. He fulfilled it all by the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Being full of the Holy Ghost, he prayed with a loud voice for God not to lay that sin to their charge. And when he had said this, the Lord Jesus received his spirit, and he fell asleep. Now, brethren, there's only one book in the world that can write about falling asleep when you're being stoned to death. And it's the Bible that we hold in our hands. The Lord Jesus is going to take care of all of you. And we're all going to fall asleep in Jesus unless he comes back before that. I hope you believe that tonight. He's a great savior. And he's never, he's never left those that put their trust in him. When he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he means it. And when Stephen stood for him, which I hope that you'll stand for him, we may not have a Jewish, Jewish council to stand before, but every one of us, have our enemies to stand before and to put our trust in him, the Lord Jesus will stand with us. And he's in heaven interceding for us and he will receive our spirit. I hope you love what the Bible has to tell us about Stephen. I hope you want to be full of the Holy Ghost like he was. I hope that you can fall asleep as sweetly as he did, praying for your enemies, full of the Holy Ghost. May the Lord bless us to see in Acts 
chapters 6 and 7, do good church order, sacred history, and a man full of the Holy Ghost, and to see the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.